0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, my name is, is is Trevor, and as Angela mentioned, um, I uh, my wife and I we were we planted a church in Portland, Oregon, uh, for a little over six years after being sent out from a church in California, um, and I have not uh, I've not preached on a Sunday uh, since our last Sunday. Uh, August, uh, April 28th, 2018. So uh, be gracious. Um, You put the notes away for any judgment, um, but uh, it's exciting to be here. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Psalm 100 is where we're going to spend our time. Psalm 100. As you're getting there, I'm going to pray for us uh, real quick as we get into the text. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here together and uh, and to study your word and God, with a group uh, this size, uh, there's so many different things that are happening in our lives, from good, from bad to hard, and everything in between. And, uh, and I pray, God, that as we look at your word, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would show yourself to us in a way that is new and that is fresh and that is encouraging, uh, regardless of how we come into this room. And so we, we ask, Spirit, that you would do that, knowing that you're the only one who can transform us into the people that you desire us to be and to live the life that you desire us to live. And so we ask that you would do that. And it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, a couple things right out of the gate. Um, we're going to do something a little different uh, at the end of this message. Um, and we're going to try and experiment and do a Q&A. So uh, when I was serving in Portland, we, um, our church primarily um, reached a lot of people that were not Christians. If you're familiar with Portland, it's one of the least religious cities in all of America. Tons of uh, very skeptical and secular people. And so one of the primary ways we engaged was after every sermon, uh, we would do a live Q&A um, and see what happened. And sometimes it, uh, it went off the rails uh, big time. Uh, and, and, but most times it was actually really meaningful. And so my invitation to you is as we go through this content— that if you have a question uh, that you would um, be, you would feel free to be able to ask it. And uh, I I don't claim to be Bible answer, I don't claim to have all the answers by any stretch, um, but I am a massive believer uh, that if we're going to wrestle with the claims of faith and believe these things, that we have to be able to have open and honest dialogue about them, because the reality is that the claims of Christianity are not always easy to believe uh, and our experience with Christianity relative to the words in the scripture don't always line up, and so I want to give an opportunity for us to be, have a little bit of a conversation about that. Uh, with that in mind, we've been in the Psalms for the last couple weeks. We, we heard from Dan last week in Psalm 88. We heard from um, in Psalm 51 the week before, and, uh, or 51 rather, and what I love about the Psalms relative to the rest of the Bible, is the way that a lot of people, uh, non-Christian, secular folk in in particular, will come to the scriptures is viewing the the Bible as a series of do's and don'ts, rules, lists, commandments, things like that. And the Psalms is not that at all. In fact, the Psalms is a collection of songs, of poetry, of journal entries, of confession, of lament. It's all over the place. And what is great about The Psalms is it shows us a window into the full experience of being human with God. So you get songs, you get Psalms of joy and happiness and peace and contentment. uh, But as we looked at last week in Psalm eighty-eight, you get Psalms of depression and Psalms of feeling like you're in the pit. You get Psalms of shame, of confession of some of the worst sin imaginable. You get Psalms of anger, uh, some of things that are very hard in our culture to actually articulate as Christians, we feel it's a little bit dangerous to be able to uh, actually communicate the things that we, he- we read in the Psalms. And so I love the fact that the Psalms kind of lay bare before us the full range of human emotion, good, bad, ugly, and everything in between. And so as we look at this Psalm today, Psalm 100, uh, I think the primary focus on this Psalm is about identity. Is about identity and trying to answer the question, who are you? Who am I? Uh, when we ask that question in our Western culture, usually it's, it's somewhere around the idea of what to do for a living. Who are you? We answer with our occupation. We answer with what typically is most important uh, in our lives. So that might be parenthood. That might be our job. That might be our hobby. Whatever the case may be, we're generally in the West very quick Asks the question, "Who are you?" We respond with what we do. And the psalm here is going to target more about really what is our identity. Um, And so, to get started, uh, to keep us all kind of level set, I want to start with a definition of what identity is. Um, Identity is at least two things. Uh, Number one, uh, identity is a sense of self that is durable. A sense of self that is durable. Uh, in other words, uh, this is sustained and true in every setting. Uh, so this is the opposite of thinking about entering a room with a mask on, uh, entering a room and having to be a chameleon and trying to sh- shift to whatever your audience is or whoever you're in front of, or whatever you think you need to be in the, in the eyes of people that you love, respect, admire, whatever the case may be. Identity is having a sense that is durable. That regardless of what room you step into, you understand who you are and can live that out. So it's a, a self that a sense of self that is durable. Second, uh, it's a sense of self that, uh, a sense of self worth that is appropriate. A sense of self worth that is appropriate. So this isn't an, an overgrandizement of who you are, but it's also not the reverse about coming in thinking that you're a horrible human. Filled with shame or guilt or whatever the case may be. It's a right assessment of your worth. It's a right assessment of your worth. And how we understand identity uh, truly has changed over the years. Uh, You and I primarily think about identity through our very hyper-individualistic Western culture. Uh, But it hasn't always been that way. Uh, In fact, in ancient times, most people would get your identity primarily from connecting to something much bigger than yourself much bigger than your individual interests. So this would either be to God, to family, to nation, or to some configuration of all three. Uh, But the times have changed uh, drastically, especially in our culture and the air that we breathe. The cultural narrative typically around identity is pushed back to the individual to say that you get to create your identity, that you get to decide whoever you're going to be. And in the face of it, it sounds like a tremendous amount of freedom that we don't have to be oppressed by our family or by a God or by a nation or whatever the case may be, that you and I actually have the freedom to create ourselves and be whoever it is that we want to be. The problem with that is all the statistics that show that it's working horribly. It's working terribly. I'll give you an example. A quote from a, a philosopher, Wayne de says, our culture tells us that we have the, the power to create ourselves. And that puts the emphasis on independence and self-reliance, but it also means that our society awards winners and it despises losers, showing contempt for weakness. All this produces a pressure and an anxiety beyond what our ancestors knew. We have to decide our look, our style, our stance, our ethos, and we have to promote ourselves and be expected in this space, professionally, socially, aesthetically, in which we have chosen to create ourselves. And so although our our culture creates and presents a message that you get to be autonomous to create whoever it is that you want to be, what it's actually bearing out for individuals all over our country in particular, especially right now, is that it is a weight, it is a pressure that is crushing. Uh, Why is that? Because the goalpost is always changing. The goalpost is always changing. Depending on the room you enter, depending on the job that you have, depending on the people that you're around, depending on what's going on on social media, depending on what's going on on the news, it's a weight that is exhausting, and it is creating more and more so anxiety, depression, and hardship because people don't have a firm foundation of who they are, a foundation that can withstand joy, but a foundation that can withstand earth-shattering pain and everything in between. So that's what I want to talk about today. Um, My plan is to do it relatively quickly. Um, I know you don't believe me because every pastor or preacher says that, and they still go on for 45-plus minutes. So, um, but I have a timer that I'm desperately going to stick to. Um, My plan for us is to walk through three things uh, and then get to Q&A and and respond. Uh, Here are the three ideas. Number one, the problem of modern culture's view of identity. Two, Christianity's view of identity. And then three, how to experience a Christian identity. So let's jump into number one. Uh, we've already been talking about it a little bit, so this will be relatively quick. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into the problem of modern culture's identity, uh, because I think it's important as we spend the rest of our lives outside of a church setting, with a twenty-four seven news cycle, with social media coming in every direction, with all the changes that are going around. You and I are are truly bombarded with so many other narratives outside of what the Bible has to say and outside of what Christianity has to say. And so, I want to get under our cultural narrative a little bit and then go to the scriptures. So, we've talked about it briefly, uh, but the advent of social media, the news cycle, etc., has made it increasingly challenging to have an identity that is durable, To have a self-worth that is real uh, and that is not either over-exaggerated or comes way under who we are as human beings. Uh, Charles Taylor, who is a Christian philosopher, said it like this, uh, the self-made identity based on your own performance and achievement in ways that older identities were not not, makes our self-worth far more fragile in the face of failure and difficulty. This makes us, more than ever, vulnerable to the recognition given or withheld by significant others. You have to be beautiful, you have to be hip, you have to be accomplished, and quote, they have to think so. Uh, Charles Taylor, I think, rightly uh, points out, our culture is primarily, and we'll get into this more, is primarily based on performance upon achievement um, and being able to show that or demonstrate that to whoever they are and ensuring that we get their improvement. And so you think about this, if you think about it for your own life, how tenuous this can be, how fragile this makes our identity, because all of these things change so dramatically. And they change so quickly. So what we we see, and this happens in my life, and I imagine in yours, when we are doing well in life, our identity tends to reflect that. In other words, we view ourselves, we view life, we view God, we view... Uh, our work, our circumstance generally in a very positive way, but when things change, which they inevitably do, it can feel like everything gets pulled out from underneath us and we have no firm foundation. We have no basis to go back to. So whether that's relational issues, whether that's parenting issues, whether that's your job, whether that's family, whatever the case may be, we get exposed in these areas and what they end up pointing out to us really is where our identity is at. Where you, where you and I find value, where you and I find meaning, where you and I find worth. And despite the culture's attempt to continue to tell us that it leads to freedom, we're seeing the exact opposite of it. The pressure that all of us at different times feel to be something that doesn't always hold up. I'll give you one more example before we take off from this point. Um, David Foster Wallace, who was uh, a very eccentric philosopher, if you've ever read it or heard of him, he wrote uh, just a brick called The Infinite Jest, and it's a really great philosophical philosophical work if you have trouble sleeping. Um, But... He, is, he was not a Christian um, by any stretch. In 2005, he actually ended up taking his own life, uh, but he was invited to Kenyon College to give a commencement speech. So imagine the scene, uh, a bunch of college graduates are sitting down, they're waiting to go enter into the workforce, they're waiting to go enter into their lives, and David Foster Wallace, a, a non-religious uh, philosopher, comes up to give them uh, encouragement. I want you to hear what he says to them about uh, about life and about what they're getting ready to walk into and see if it resonates for you. He says this, "Uh, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you find your identity in money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. And if you find your identity in your body and in beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Find your identity in power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Find your identity in intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of identity is they're unconscious. They're our default settings. I think uh, uh, David here points out rightly in light of our culture that these are where the primary identifiers for our value and worth come in. Whether it's our intellect, whether it's our job, whether it's the power we have, whether it's our body, whatever the case may be, and what he's rightly pointing out is, as those things break down, as those things go away, so too it does your value and your worth. So my question um, for us, as we move forward, and, and having been a pastor and having and living this every day, have seen this a number of uh, a number of times around people that come in feeling a sense of shame, a sense of failure, a sense of guilt, a sense of unworthiness because of the external circumstances in their lives. So, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, How can we find an identity that is more solid than that? Surprise, surprise, we'll look at the Bible for that answer. Uh, And here's where I do believe that Christianity offers such a unique and powerful resource to everyone, one vastly different than the rest of the culture. Uh, because God's view and relationship to us is so utterly different than our Western secular view. And I believe it actually has the power to set us free. It has the power to set us free. So I'm, uh, I'm going to be actually reading from Matthew chapter 3 and a little bit of Matthew chapter 4. You're welcome to go there. We're going to still land back in Psalm 100, but I'm going to read from Matthew 3 and, and 4 to. Uh, give us a view of Christian identity. Now, uh, this could be a whole sermon series of itself. We could take weeks and months to be able to talk about this. For the sake of time, I want to just look at two examples from the life of Jesus and how he views and his identity, interprets his own identity, and how that's practical to you and I. So, Matthew chapter 3, if you're a little bit familiar with uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uh, has, for the first 30 years of his life, been living in relative obscurity. Uh, he's been a carpenter. He was born in a town that no one would ever want to go to. He comes from a people that aren't very special. He hasn't done anything yet that, is, that gets him any fame or any notoriety. He has been living in obscurity quietly for the past 30 years, and we're just on the verge in Matthew 3 uh, of him starting out his public ministry. So, for context for us, as, as, as Westerners who think about uh, doing an achievement uh, above most things, Jesus has done nothing yet. Nothing yet that we would necessarily look to him to say, that guy is legit, now, we do get a glimpse in, in, um, in Luke 2 about his uh, interactions in the temple, but by and large, there's nothing yet to show that Jesus is anything special. And so it's as that backdrop that Jesus comes to uh, John, John the Baptist, who is baptizing people in the river, and Jesus comes to John and says, hey, you need to baptize me. John rightly says, I don't think so. I'm not in the business of baptizing God. This seems to be a reverse order. Jesus naturally wins that argument, as he does, and John, end, and John ends up baptizing him. And I want to read this to you, um, and, and I want you to hear this very clearly. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't say, this is my beloved son who I'm going to be really pleased when he gets this church off the ground. When he gets this big organization grown to a substantial point with an incredible social media following and a remarkable amount of influence. No, prior to him even setting forth to do his ministry, God the Father says, you are my son, and I'm pleased with you. If if we were super real for a second, and I know it's church, so it can be hard to do that, but how many of us are looking for that type of validation right now? You are my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased, hard stop not tied to you being a parent, not tied to your occupation, not tied to this, not tied to that. Because of who you are, I am well pleased. So with that in mind, Jesus hears these words over him, that God the Father loves him, and that he is well pleased. And immediately after, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. You remember this, Ma- Matthew 4, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, for, to fast for 40 days and for 40 nights, and then is tempted by Satan. Uh, in the text in Matthew 4, Satan tempts him with, comes with three temptations. For the sake of time, we're going to look at two. Uh, and I want to look at these two temptations that, G- that Satan comes to Jesus with. Number one, the first temptation is you are what you do. Number two, you are what others think of you. Performance and popularity. So let's take a look at uh, Matthew 4. Then the devil, uh, starting at verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the, uh, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, uh, uh, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, as we said, Jesus at this point is not popular. He's just coming on the scene. Nothing has officially started, and Satan comes to him immediately to sow doubt in his identity, if you are the son of God. It was just confirmed to him through the father of his identity, of his worth, of his value, that he is the son of God. Satan comes to him and says, if. If. And in this temptation, Satan is telling Jesus, how amazing would it be if you jumped off of this pinnacle? Satan has taken him to the highest point in Jerusalem, a very visible point in the city, and Satan comes to him to say, how incredible would it be if you jumped off this thing and angels caught you? That's legit. Think about how many people would believe in you. Think about the book deals that would come in. We'd get you on the conference tour. You'd be speaking like crazy. TED Talks would galore for you. It would be remarkable. He's trying to get Jesus to question his identity. He's trying to get Jesus to do something that would violate the mission that God has given him, would violate the identity that God has given him. Go to the top of the pinnacle. Do something incredibly showy, flashy, do something amazing, and people will think you're incredible. They'll listen to you. And would that be true? Yes. If I saw someone jump off of a building and then hover down, I would probably listen to him. He would get a new Twitter follower for sure. But that's that's not the mission that Jesus was on. I'll reference this over and over again throughout the last bit of our time. Uh, However, what God's plan for Jesus was, was to live a life of humility, meekness, relationship, service, and ultimately to die a humiliating death on the cross so that you and I can be forgiven and reconciled back to God. God did not give Jesus the task of coming out onto the scene and blowing everything up so people would see him as great and amazing and powerful right out of the gate. Jesus came incredibly subversive, lowly, humble, and in a way that none of us would look at and go, that's a guy who's going to start the biggest religion with the most amount of followers ever. He would, he, you, wouldn't, you and I wouldn't start that way. Satan is telling Jesus that you can skip all of that hard stuff and instead skyrocket to fame. Skip the suffering, skip the humiliation, skip the betrayal, just do this amazing thing, violate who you are and your identity, but it's going to lead to amazing things. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, who's an author that I really love and respect, um, says this on this passage. He says, Often our longings to be noticed and esteemed by others are so deep and unconscious that it can be difficult to recognize it, is for, it for what it is. And yet it surfaces in subtle but recognizable ways. For example saying yes when we would rather say no, refusing to speak up because we don't want to rock the boat, or remaining silent about our preferences and desires out of fear of what others might think of us. This is not freedom. Freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we're content to be popular with God alone. And because of Jesus' identity, he's able to respond to Satan with Scripture and reject the opportunity to skip all of the hardship, all of the boredom, all of the slowness and skyrocket to fame because of his security and who God says he was. Second temptation. You are what you do. And this comes from uh, the idea of performance identity. Matthew 4, 8 through 9 says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, there is some similarities between these two temptations. Uh, What we saw in the last temptation focuses on what others think about us. Jesus, if you fell and everybody saw this and you got caught, everybody will think you're amazing. Everybody will want to listen to you. This temptation focuses on what others, uh, uh, on on the popularity side and the approval side. The temptation focuses on how successful you can be in a way that violates our identity. Now, we need to consider Jesus' life again no Westerner would ever look at Jesus' life as a success. Jesus' life in our our mode of thinking, I would argue, would be seen as a complete failure. And and let me just say why. He never grew a massive following, and when he did, and then he said hard things, 99% of them abandoned him. He never made it to Rome, The political capital of the world, to go speak there, to go have influence there. In fact, in his last week on earth, he was betrayed by his best friends, he was arrested, he was beaten to an inch of his life, and then ultimately he was crucified and murdered. Now, how many of us, in putting a business plan together and putting a life plan together, would have that on our vision board of a successful life? It was so bad that the disciples, after Jesus dies, they go into a room alone, afraid of everybody, in the fetal position because the experiment that they were in, thinking that they were on the ground floor of a revolution, had just failed. They're depressed, they're angry, they're sad, all the hope, everything that they put into Jesus to be this amazing figure is now gone because he's dead. It would seem to be a failure in our eyes. And yet, at the beginning of his ministry, and we see through the life of Jesus, he was the most successful human that we've ever seen. He was the most successful human we've ever seen. Pete Scazzaro says it again like this. "Uh, We need to see this for what it is. It's a counterfeit faith that has the power to separate us from Jesus. Remember, we live in a larger culture that believes everything bigger is always better, bigger profits, bigger influence, bigger impact, and the church more or less is guilty at times of believing the same thing. According to Jesus, success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. So, The crazy news when it comes to Christianity is you and I can look like a complete failure in the eyes of our culture and be a radical success to heaven. A radical success to heaven. Because Jesus is not looking at the same metrics that you and I. Square footage of your house, year of your car, 401k, uh, letters in front of your name, whatever the case may be. Jesus's identity was so secure in the Father, was so secure in who he was, by hearing that he is God's beloved, that he was able to live a life of being poor, a life of being mocked, a life of being betrayed, and still to have an identity that was firm, unshakable. Uh, for me, this is, uh, this is without a question my biggest struggle. Um, if, if you know the Enneagram at all, I fall as an Enneagram 3, which is the Achiever Performer. So my default core fundamental value is that people uh, do not love me unless I can perform and achieve. That's my whole life is tied to. Uh, because certainly no one could just love me uh, for me it has to be tied to performance. It has to be tied to achievement. And so I feel at the deepest level of my core, the need to constantly do better and to perform so that I can receive validation because I don't think I can get it with just who I am. This is, this is my struggle um, all the way through and through. Uh, it relates to, how it, it, it hits me in how I relate to people. It certainly uh, is applicable to how I relate to God the struggle of performance to receive validation. And it's a constant, constant struggle to not look at everything else in the world, see that I'm not doing enough, and believe that somehow God is upset or frustrated with me because that, and therefore I am unworthy of love. And yet, time and time again, we see... Jesus' security in who he is because of the Father's love for him. And the same thing is offered to you and I. The same thing is offered to you and I. So, in light of that, let's take a look at Psalm 100. I promised we would get there. Everyone was probably thinking, Psalm 100 what? Um, what we've seen so far, the cultural's view of identity that it's transient, that it's unattainable, that it shifts constantly, the pressure and weight and anxiety that it creates and trying to come up with our own self and actually have that be enough for the rest of the world. And then quickly looking at Jesus and his identity and his security to be able to live out his life in the face of critics, in the face of the culture, in the face of his enemies, in the face of betrayal, and so on and so forth. And so the question is, um, how do we experience that? How, how can you and I have that? Um, because if you're anything like me, I'm desperately looking for how I can have that. How can I have that type of security? How can I have that type of identity? And I want to give you a couple, reason, a couple ways to experience that out of Psalm 100. Uh, Psalm 100 verse 1 says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, "'Serve the Lord with gladness. "'Come into his presence with singing. "'Know that the Lord, he is God. "'It is he who made us, and we are his. "'We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. "'Enter his gates with thanksgiving "'and his courts with praise, "'and give thanks to him. "'Bless his name.'" Verse five, "'For the Lord is good, "'and his steadfast love endures forever, "'and his faithfulness to all generations.'" two ideas on how to experience a Christian identity. Number one is know that your value and worth will never change to God. Verse three, he says this, know or experience that the Lord, he is good. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and we are the sheep of his pasture. Do you hear the incredibly direct and personal language that is coming from God, speaking to you and I. God, the creator of the entire cosmos, everything that we see and, un- and don't see, in the vastness of space, I don't know if you saw the new pictures of, of space recently that just came out, were un- unbelievable. This is the God who created all of those things, is speaking directly to you and I when he says, he made you. You are his You are his people, and you are the sheep to his pasture. You were not created on accident. You were created intentionally. You were created with purpose. You were created with value. You were created with love, regardless of your status, of your position, of your IQ, of any and all of that crap. You were created by God for God you got to let that sink in for a second because there's a lot of people that you and I are striving to get affirmation and value and worth from that can never deliver it in the way that God is saying to us right now, I created you. You have value and worth. You are mine. You're mine. You're my people. You're my sheep. I will look over you. I will pasture you. I will pasture you. Number two, know that there is nothing you can do to change God's love for you. Verse 5, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. We could look at a hundred plus verses uh, that repeat this same message. The psalmist says that God is good and his steadfast love for you will not and cannot change. You hear that? Will not and cannot change. So that means when you're not feeling like a good Christian. When you sin, when you walk away, when you doubt, whatever it is that's going through your mind, God is saying, I cannot and I will not stop loving you. It's not based on your performance. It's based on who you are to me and what Jesus has done for you. Regardless of your performance or lack thereof, his promise to you is faithfulness and is love because of who he has created you to be. I mean, where are you going to get that? Where are we going to get that outside of the Christian narrative? It doesn't come from parents the way it should. It doesn't come from our work. It doesn't come from relationships. It doesn't come from culture. It doesn't come from news. All that stuff can change on a dime. Here, God is saying, my love for you does not change. The way that I prove that is by what Jesus did on the cross for you. The way that I show that in the deepest way possible is sending Jesus so that we could be back in relationship together. There's no greater way to demonstrate God's love for you by doing what he did by sending Jesus to die. So, I'll pause there for a second. Take a breath. That was a fire hose of content. I actually, it was 32 minutes. I apologize for being a little late. Uh, but... We'll take a second, and if anybody has any questions, um, we'd love to talk, and then we're going to... I'll talk real briefly about how we can respond to this. So who's going to be the brave one to ask the first question, which inevitably gets all the other questions going? And if you don't, don't feel pressure or anything like that. It's okay. You're loved. Yes? Uh, What's your name? Sasha, yeah. Um, you identify the difference between performance performance and obedience? Performance and obedience? Yeah, so Sasha asked the question, can you identify the difference between performance and obedience, Uh, which I think is a great question. Uh, I think the difference between the two is going to ultimately come down to motive. Motive. Um, When you think about the idea of performance and the way that I've been using it, um, it's similar to the way that Jesus talks about how the Pharisees prayed. Um, don't be like the Pharisees who pray these massive words, who uh, use all these big words and, le- and, and and huge thoughts to be able to get approval uh, and perform in front of people. You go into your room where nobody is, be quiet and silent, and I'll see the stuff you do there. So obedience, I think, relative to what you asked on the difference between, between performance, ultimately comes down to motive, where obedience is similar to what Jesus, uh, we read in Hebrews, that Jesus learned obedience through suffering, that he obeyed God regardless of how it looked, regardless of how it felt, and regardless of what the outcome was gonna be. So I think it ties a lot back to to motive. Obedience is gonna be out of a love and trust that uh, God has good for us, regardless um, regardless of what might happen, whereas performance might be something that we're trying to get or trying to attain. I Hope that helps. Who else? Good question. Yeah. Idolatry and identity? Yeah. Yeah, 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 really good question. So uh, the difference between idolatry and identity, Um, One of the thoughts that comes to mind is the golden calf incident, right? Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from God. Um, He's not gone very long uh, before the Israelites are like, we're not hearing from him, nothing's happened, what's going on? Let's take all of our gold, we'll just throw it into uh, this fire and then out comes the golden calf that they begin to worship and they begin to praise because they need something to fill the void of what appears to be uh, the silence of God. Um, And so that idolatry and trying to put ultimate value and worth in something that was never intended to be able to carry it, and something that was never intended to be able to hold that type of of, of value and worth. Um, You put it into your job, you get fired, everything goes. You put it into health, health declines, everything goes, rather than our identity being found in someone uh, in Jesus who can support the weight of all of those things. So if all of those things go to hell in a handbasket, your identity never changes. Your worth never changes. I don't think too the identity in God is not changing, but identity in the or in the world is not gonna be there. Yeah. It's gonna be so temporary, as soon as they change the past, or they change something you are done. Yes, yeah, so uh, um, the fact that, um, culture's identity, it, it changes constantly, changes weekly, daily. You see it on social media, you see it in the news. It's a never-ending game of trying to keep up with what's relevant at this point. Uh, verse God, who sustains our identity regardless. It doesn't change. Yeah, really great. Uh, who else? We have time for one or two more. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, so uh, Dan asks, how how do we find um, our identity, our action, what we're supposed to do um, from God? Which uh, which is a great question, and we could spend a whole sermon on that as as well. Um, I think I think there's a couple things. I think one, um, you have to know your temperament. You have to know kind of who God has created you to be, how He's wired you. Um, some people. Uh, want the stage, want to be a CEO, want to do all these things. Other people, that sounds like absolute death to them. They would rather be in a one-on-one scenario with people relative to others who want to be in a, in a group of people. Being able to know even those kind of things in terms of how you direct your attention um, play a huge role in that. Um, I think understanding the of life that you're in. Uh, if you are uh, a parent with young kids, uh, that's a massive limit on the amount of things that you can do. And I don't say limit negatively. But that's a a massive limit in the amount of things or the type of things that you can do because so much focus is needed on your family, on your kids, on being available emotionally um, and mentally and having the energy to be able to do that. So I think seasons are part of that. I think understanding your temperament, who God has created you to be, how God has wired you to be, um, and then listening. Listening and looking for opportunities that aren't going to violate, um, aren't going to violate your identity. And I I would say for me, because my identity is often so tied to performance, um, I have to think through opportunities like this to be able to teach because it's so tethered to um, my value and my worth. So like I said at the very beginning, it's been four years since I've done this. Part of me thinks I, I, I can't believe I'm actually doing this again. I never thought I would. And part of me thinks, where the heck were the phone calls over the last four years for me to do this? If we're, if we're being a little honest. Um, and so I, I think, you know, understanding and being aware of, of, your, of your shadows, of, of who God has created you to be, and being honest enough to say, if I step into this, this, this can violate who God has created me to be, who I am, and what he's asked for me. All right, one more, I promise. It's, it's like you were a plant to lead me to my, next, my last two points of conclusion, so thank you. Um, I'll invite the worship team up for, uh, for right now, but the, the question is how, how should we respond to this in a culture that does put this type of pressure on, on you and um, on us, and I could give a host of, host of different answers to that, but one of the ones that's been so impactful for me that I want to share is um, that I would encourage you for this week is to grow comfortable sitting in silence and stillness before God. Grow comfortable in sitting in silence and stillness before God. Not reading your Bible, not praying, but just sitting in the presence of God. That's a challenge for me because I like I, I want to do. What can I do? What activity can I do? What? How can I perform? What? Uh, let me check the Bible reading app. Let me do this. But sitting in stillness with God for a minute to two minutes, I mean for, for some two minutes feels like two hours, uh, but to be able to sit for a couple minutes, two minutes even, two minutes, in silence and stillness before God, because God wants nothing from you, he just wants to be with you. That's, that's a discipline that, that has changed my life now. Um, what inevitably happens is I sit down, I get real serious. I'm going to sit before God in my presence, in his presence, my identity is not tied to all this other stuff. Um, and then I got to do the dishes. There's an email I have to respond. I forgot to do this. The truck needs to be washed. This, that, and the other thing. And so there's a thousand different things that come up right in that moment that are urgent that I need to take care of. And those in those, in those times are a reminder that I'm a human, that I'm in process, and I'm just going to come back to Jesus knowing that he deeply understands that I'm a human who is overwhelmed with a thousand things going on. So one of my encouragements to you, to me, to us this week is try to make it a practice of of two minutes. Just sit before God. He just wants to be with you. It's not tied to your performance. It's tied to his deep, deep love for you. And the second one I'll give is what we can do right now is by responding by singing and praising. Uh, Verse 4 Um, of psalm 100 says this enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise give thanks to him and bless his name I i think it's a great opportunity for us to be able to respond with thanks to god and praise to god because right this second if you believe in jesus and what he has done for you your identity is eternally secured your value and worth will never change And so what a great opportunity to be able to sing back to God, to say thank you and praise you, that you are unlike anything else in this entire solar system, that you love us for who we are, that you died for our sins, and that you are working in us to make us the people that he desires us to be, to make us more like Jesus. And so we have an opportunity to respond to that, to respond to that. Um, So regardless of how you are feeling right now with your identity and your value and self-worth as the Psalms teaches us, you get to bring all of that to God. Um, There are two rugs up here, um, and you can come up, and if you are feeling shame, if you are feeling guilt, if you are feeling condemnation, if you're feeling like a fraud, if you're feeling like a failure, you can actually come and respond to God, acknowledge those things, and let him wash over you with the amount of love and faithfulness and desire that he has for you because that's his relationship to you and that's his posture to you and I. So let me pray for us, and we'll respond. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for the opportunity to um, take a few minutes and talk about uh, our identity. And God, uh, um, uh, all of us come in here with different thoughts and feelings about our value and about our self-worth. And so I pray that right now in these few remaining minutes that we have as we sing, that you would help us to respond to your love with singing and praise. And for those of us that are feeling condemned or feeling like failures or feeling like frauds, I pray, God, that as as we come up to these carpets, that you, Jesus, would speak life to us, that we are your sons and daughters who you love and you are well pleased in. And I pray that we would know that, we would feel that, we would experience that right now. And as we walk out into the world, to our families, to our jobs, that you would help us to remember that our identity and our self-worth are locked up in you. We love you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.